0: of actually reading, we didn't even start the beginning. According to, we have a Talmudic passage in Brachot. According to Rabbi Yochanan, it is a mitzvah to recite Shema before the evening prayer. Mara, son of Ravina, raises an objection from a Mishnah. How can one do that? We learn in a later Mishnah. In the evening, one recites two blessings prior to the recitation of Shema and two blessings afterwards. And if you say that one must juxtapose redemption to prayer, doesn't he fail to juxtapose redemption to prayer? As he must recite, help us lie down, Hashkivenu," which is the, the blessing, the fourth blessing in the evening uh, blessings of Shema. And it's the last blessing right before Shemona Esrei. Now that blessing is recited after the blessing of redemption. In other words, when we say the Shema, right after we say the Shema, the next thing that we say is, emes veEmuna," right? And we talk about the fact that we have faith that God will redeem us in the future. That's what we do in the evening prayers, okay? But after that blessing, we have another blessing. And that other blessing is focused on help us go to sleep properly, right? The the prayer for the insomniac, so to speak, right? Now, that prayer that was not related to redemption, how are you allowed to recite it? it? It should constitute an interruption between redemption and prayer. In other words, we've discussed in the past the concept of why it is that we want to have this very, very tight juxtaposition between redemption and prayer, redemption kind of focuses on the fact that Hashem is our closest relative, so to speak. And prayer is when we then reciprocate to Hashem. So it's very important to have them one right next to the other. But yet over here, we talk about Hashkevenu before we go into the Shemona Esrei. So it kind of interrupts. They say in response, since the sages instituted the practice of reciting, help us lie down is considered one extended blessing of redemption and therefore does not constitute an interruption. What does this mean? this means is, since the very practice of reciting Help Us Lie Down was instituted by the rabbis, we consider it as if the first blessing after the Shema, which is all about redemption, it is kind of an add-on to that first blessing. So since it's just an add-on to that first blessing, it's considered an extension, and therefore it's not an interruption. As if you fail to say that the sections added by the sages are considered no less significant than the original prayers, And how can one one juxtapose redemption to prayer even in the morning? The inner Rabbi Yochanan say, before every prayer, one recites the verse, Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your glory as a prelude to prayer. Afterward, one recites the verse, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable before you. Doesn't the verse, Lord, open my lips, constitute an interruption between redemption and prayer? Rather, there... Since the sage is instituted that one must recite Lord open my lips, it is considered as an extended prayer and not as an interruption. Here too, with regard to the evening prayer, since the sage is instituted to recite the blessing, help us lie down. It is considered as one extended blessing of redemption. Okay. So what we're saying right now is, is that the Gemara tells us explicitly that this is all part of the prayer of redemption is to say these ideas of Hashem sef my Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. And this is all one extended blessing of redemption. Rabbi Schwab says, <clears throat> you have to have a better understanding though. what is the concept? Why are we using these, this phrase? This phrase of Hashem sef asait what does this phrase come from? What's it all about? So Schwab says like this. He says, if you remember, when we daven the Shmona Esrei, it is as a substitute for the offerings. So it means that instead of bringing an offering, we are actually dabbing the Esrei, which does the same thing as what the offering does. Okay. Now, if you think about an offering, and in particular, if you think about the carbon ola, a carbon ola, ola means to go up, right? Like to make aliyah, right? And ola means one who does go up, right? A carbon ola means an offering that is brought for the sake of going up. So what does that mean? It means it is fully burned. But before, however, that offering is burned, there is actually two other steps that take place. There's what we call the hafshet, right? Hafshet, which comes from the word of hashat. okay? Pashintes, that's the Hebrew word. Pashintes means simple. It also means to remove something, okay? So you would say, pashat et bigadav. He removed his garments, okay? So what is Hashat, what is hafshit when we talk about a half Hafshit is what we do is we take the animal and before we bring it up as an offering, we skin the animal. Okay. Then we do nituach, then we cut the animal up into different sections. And then kallel le'ishim and then it is burned on the mizbeach. Okay. So the same way the carbon oila has three different steps. It has a hafshit, nituach, and kalil le'ishim. So too, does the Shmona Esrei, not the Shmona I'm sorry. So too, we have to do that to ourselves. What Does that mean we take off our skin? right? What exactly are we doing? In what sense are we doing this? Remember though, the concept that prayer really, um, replaces the Karbanos, that is well-established. That is something that we read in the Gemara, right? Then now that we no longer have the Karbanos, therefore we have the ability by davening about the Karbanos. Remember, I I think we did this Gemara together also. Abraham Avinu says to Hashem, how do I know that you won't get angry at my children when they sin one day far off in the future? This is and Abraham is only 75 years old. He has not yet had a child. But he says, you're promising me many, many children. How do I know that the same way you got angry at people who sinned and said that they're no longer going to be the chosen people? How do I know that you're not going to do the same thing with my children? So Hashem said, they'll bring offerings. So Abram says, oh, that's good if you have a place to bring an offering. Well, let's say you no longer have a place to bring an offering. How do I know that you're not going to get angry? You won't be able to forgive them. So Hashem says, well, if they daven and they read about the offerings, that itself will be the way that they establish forgiveness, right? So prayer is the avoda, is the service of the heart. Prayer is what we do today to make up for the fact that we don't have a temple, okay? So before we do the Shmona Esrei, we want to sort of represent ourselves as if we are ready to be brought as a carbon ayla. First step would be to remove our skin. So what do we do? How do we remove our skin in the Shmona Esrei? We don't actually remove our skin, right? Something's very important to recognize. Where's the first place in the Torah that we talk about skin? Everybody remember where the first place in the Torah that we talk about skin?
1: Well, I I don't know if you mean like when Adam and Eve wanted to cover
0: themselves. Actually, that is what I mean. That is what I mean. It doesn't say the word skin about their fact that they were not wearing clothing. It says that they recognized that they were naked. It doesn't say that they saw their skin, but then it says that Hashem made them garments. What were the garments made out of? Skins. Skins, exactly. The garments were made out of skins. They were called kasnos ar. Okay, now question for you. They didn't require these skins beforehand right why did they require their skins beforehand because they were on such a high level that seeing each other naked would not cause any issues because you don't when we see each other in this world we see people right we see skin color right we see different elements of external qualities but david was explaining last night that he told his grandchildren that the body is not truly make the man or the woman right the body is not really what we are. Who are we really at our essence, at our core? We are the soul. We are our sentient being, right? And the only reason why we perceive things in terms of being objectified and thinking of bodies, thinking of clothing and things of that sort is only because we have been lowered, right? We're not on the same level as we wish to really be on. So when we talk about removing the skin in this circumstance, what we mean is removing all of the, the trappings of this life that we live in which we are so hyper-focused on the here and now, on the physical, right? which is not really the ideal, right? We are supposed to be taking the physical and elevating it, as I've said many times, right? But the ideal is to focus on the internal, right? You want to look at someone else and see their soul, right? You don't want to look at someone else and see, yeah, they have wrinkles. Yeah, she's not so pretty, right? They're, not, they're dressed very nerdy, right? That should not be our focus in this world at all, right? That the ideal, of course, is to only focus on the soul. Before we dive into Shemon we have to recognize we're about to stand in front of God. We need to remove all of that garbage, all of the other things that are, we are busy with in our lives. That's really all about the physical. It's really all about the garment, so to speak, that is enwrapping us. But it's not about the garment per se, right? The garment is really the analogy of even the body itself being the garment for the soul.
1: Well, are you saying that this removal of our skin? figuratively it, it kind of corresponds to the literal removal of the skin of the animal that you're going to sacrifice
0: yes yeah. okay so the, and, and therefore that's something that that helps us focus right helps us recognize the purpose of life right hypothetically they could have taken the carbon and burnt it with the skin it could have right now, everything else is skinny burned why not just burn it with the skin too well I think one reason is it probably smells very badly when you burn an animal skin up I would imagine. Um, another reason is they actually would give that animal skin to the kohanim, to the priests, right? they, because the kohanim get a portion of every offering, you know, sort of like in lieu of payment, they get a portion of the animal. Okay? That's how, how the kohanim are supported. Remember, the kohanim don't have ancestral lands that they get to farm. Right? So th- that being said, there's another idea, too. We're supposed to be perceiving that by removing the skin, we're recognizing the real purpose of life. Right. The skin is even when it comes to the bringing the offerings, what we're offering up to Hashem, so to speak, is the true essence of the being. Right. Now, obviously, the animal you're talking about over here, you're not offering up a soul, you're offering up an animal. So you're offering meat as opposed to skin. That's also very physical, you'll tell me. Well, the answer is it's more about a symbolic offering. Right. It's symbolically saying we're taking away the skin because we're recognizing Hashem does not want us to make outward external signs of our deep belief and deep faith and self-righteous you know emotions you know that that show who we are Hashem wants it to be internal Hashem wants us to truly bring our souls up to a higher level okay so therefore we are to disregard our outer physical frame while the inner self the true self is really communicating with Hashem the part of ourselves that we see in the mirror is obviously not really who we are, right? I mentioned this, I think, last week in, in CHILL, right? In, um, in, in Berkeley, when you ask a student, you go ask a group of students in Berkeley to point at themselves, and they point at their heart. In Stanford, you ask a group of students to point at themselves, and they point at their heads, right? Because they think of themselves as being their brain. And in Berkeley, they think of themselves as being their heart, like at some subliminal level, at least, right? So, but the fact of the matter is, everybody recognizes our physical body is not really who we are and 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 the fact that in today's day and age we're living in an era in which people are so hyper focused we have you know the instagrams and the tiktok and everybody's so focused on their on their body it's it's a terrible travesty and, and completely obscuring the point of life actually now so the next thing that we need to do so that that's that's co- kind of reflective of the half-shake, of the removing of the of the skin the next step would be the nituach. Nituach is when you take the animal and you cut it up into different sections before you put it on the mizbeach to be burned. What do we do that is similar to being cut up into different sections? Okay, So it's important to recognize this idea. Let's look at the next, next source in our source. So, so source number two. We have a, a verse in Psalms. And the verse in Psalms tells a very famous verse. verse tells us, zivche Elohim, Right, God, you will not despise a contrite and crushed heart. We use this verse to tell us what our attitude should be, particularly when it comes to doing teshuva, when it comes to repenting. We need to recognize, we need to kind of knock ourselves down to a lower level, so to speak, right? We are supposed to approach Hashem with a deep recognition of just what we truly are, right? There was, um, in Europe, in the late 1800s, there was a movement called the Musar Movement, right? The Musar Movement was all about self-development and, and uh, reflection and trying to make yourself into a better person in a very active way. There were two different schools of thought. One of them survived the war, one of them did not. The one school of thought was called Slabatka because that was the name that it was, it was the uh, place where it was originated. And Slabatka was all about pointing out the gadlus ha'adam, gadlut ha'adam, which means the great heights that man can reach. That was the focus over there. They would focus on man has the ability to be higher than angels if you only do the right thing. There was another school of thought called Navardic. In Navardic, they would focus on knocking people down. Why? They felt it was very important to humble oneself because the more we humble ourselves and the more we recognize just how great Hashem is, the more likely it is that we'll be able to fully Focus on the mission of Hashem and not focus on our lowly, lowly level of mission. Right? So now, how do we achieve this Lave Nishbar? How do we achieve a broken heart? You have to cut yourself down to size. You have to say to yourself, listen, I have some goals, I have some aspirations. What I want to do is X, Y, and Z. And then uh, you know, when, when I'm 40, I'm gonna get myself a you know a yellow Corvette right? I have these goals and aspirations in life, right? Now, these goals and aspirations in life are very, very minuscule. And in the grand scheme of things, even just of the actual world, they are almost non-existent. And certainly when it comes to thinking about what God is, and what God wants, and what man is capable of, right? And we sit there and look at ourselves in the mirror and say to ourselves, wow, that's really all you've ever done, right? You focused on you're in the wrong things in life, right? You didn't do the right things in life. You didn't focus on, right? So When we have this feeling of complete inadequacy that we did not fulfill our potential, that's actually the right time to approach God. Because when you recognize what you are, right? Now I don't mean to say that I don't mean I don't mean to say like we should be walking around thinking of ourselves as losers or not or thinking I never did anything in life. It's not my point. My point is in terms of thinking of how high up God is, right? And how low down we are, right? When we walk around our lives, right? And we walk around, what do we typically compare ourselves to? Not that you should compare or contrast anyways. Anyways, at anything, at any rate, but what do we do? We compare ourselves to other people, right? And that's what we're constantly doing. And we're saying, I did this and he did that. And I did this, they did that. And look how successful I am at this. Look how successful I am at that, right? That's what we do. That's, That's human nature, right? But instead of doing that, if we were to say to ourselves, look how high up God is. And look how low I am. That gives us a different perspective when we're about to be standing in front of God. And then saying to God, Baruch Atah, blessed are you. I am going to be speaking to God, me, a little down over here. I'm going to be speaking to God all the way up there. right? And he's going to listen to me. right? I have to recognize my inadequacies. And I need to say this with a sense of trembling and awe. Okay? Now, like I said, this means to be cut yourself down to size, and that would be more reflective of nituach to cut the animal up into portions. The third level is that the nishmuna esrei has to be said with what we call hislahabus. Hislahabus means like a passion and a zest and an enthusiasm with a like a, a fire. Okay, Hislahabus is a reference to like fire that always rises. Okay, and so to the third step of the carbon tract, the carbon uh, offering. Is to do the kaddil leishim. Is to go. Is to go. Um, to stick the the parts onto the altar. And when you stick the parts onto the altar, then you say, then then that gets completely burned. And so too, when we get at the Esrei, the tefillah should be said with this fiery passion and enthusiasm. Right. So we should feel a sense of accomplishment and a sense of exhilaration that we're part of the chosen nation. We're part of the chosen people. And we have the ability to say words in front of Hashem, the words of the Nevi'im, of the prophets, the words of the Chachamim, of the rabbis, together with the rest of the Jewish people. And in that frame of mind, we then bow down and we start saying, Baruch Ata Hashem. So before we start the that, we need to, once again, we, we've, been, we've been working and working and working our way up. And the entire prayer is all about working your way up to this moment, right? Because this moment is the holiest moment, right? But even that very last moment, you want to have these three different ideas in mind. You want to have, I am removing from myself all my gosh, yes, I'm moving from myself all my materialistic desires. I am removing, I'm going to cut myself down to size, similar to an offering. And then finally, I'm ready to jump, jump with joy at this true excitement of recognizing what it means to be part of the chosen nation. So these three things are going to be expressed. With Hashem Tsefasai Tiftach right so when we say Hashem Tsefasai Tiftach we are now saying Hashem I'm offering myself up as an offering to you right and part of the way we're going to do with that is we're going to do the the hafshet and the kalil and therefore we understand why Hashem Tsefasai Tiftach is certainly not an interruption between geula and tefila, because it is absolutely essential in terms of helping us recognize what we are about to be doing okay now let's continue. So we begin the Shemona Esrei, and we say Baruch Ata. Right. So we discussed way back when, when we first started that, when we first started our davening uh, course, we discussed what how we say Baruch atta. We're saying blessed are you. When we say blessed are you implies a level of familiarity. We're saying you, but then we say Hashem. Right. Hashem means the God, and then we say Elokeinu. Then we say, who is our God and the God of our forefathers? What's missing from this formulation that typically we have every time we make a blessing? What's the next word typically? What does Melech Ha'olam mean? King of the mean? Uh,
1: the king or ruler or monarch of the whole universe or the world.
0: But what do we do over here?
1: we don't mention the world because it's really just about us
0: yeah so so why is that
1: we don't mention the kingship or the um ruling aspect of god because um is that yeah it's not really about ruling and kingship anymore it's just about well i mean
0: by definition by definition anytime we talk about hashem of course we're talking about ruling and kingship Right. It's inescapable.
1: I never noticed that that phrase was missing.
0: Well, now you did. And now the question should be, should be glaring. Well, how can we leave that out? And indeed, I, I put it on the source sheet. It's, it's the, this, the final source, but I, we don't have time to go through it. But <clears throat> the Talmud tells us that anytime you make a blessing to Hashem and you leave out the, the word, king olam, king of the, of the world, that actually is problematic. That's not actually the right way to make a blessing. But yet over here, this is the Shemone Esrei. This is like the archetype of a blessing, right? And yet we don't say Melech We leave that out. What's the deal? Okay, that's a question. We're going to get back to that question. But before we do, a very interesting idea. When we start the Shemone Esrei, we say our God and God of our fathers. Why is that important to mention that he's also the God of the fathers? Why is that? Why is that the focus? He's our God. He is the God, right? We also then say Eloke Abraham, Eloke Yitzchak, Eloke Yaakov. We say them as if they're separate gods almost, right? Who was the God of Abraham, was the God of Isaac, was the God of of Jacob. You just said he's the God of the fathers. What do you need to specify now, every single one? What's going on over here? This seems redundant. It's just a weird formulation. Whenever we make a blessing to Hashem, we never mention the fact that he's God of our fathers, right? You think about like Kiddush Friday night, right? What do we say, right? We don't say Elokeinu, Eloke Abaseinu, right? We say Hashem who took us out of Egypt, Hashem who created the world, Hashem who rested on Shabbos. We don't talk about Hashem, the God of our fathers, right?
1: Oh, so okay. So Melech Olam is what they call universal universalistic. Um, in other words, it's about God and God's relationship with all the the entire world. Whereas when we talk about our patriarchs, we're really talking about just the particularist. In other words, just the Jewish people and just us it's it's about us now it's not about the whole
0: world that's a nice answer that's a very nice answer that that not the answer that Schwab says but that's a very nice answer i like that <laughs> i think i think that um, with this personal prayer that uh, first you are noting that it this is the god of our ancestors as a generalization and then specifically we're naming who the patriarchs
1: are as not a reminder to God, but a reminder to us that this
0: is our tradition and this is where we are coming from as we open up the prayer. That's very nice. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I like that too. That's also a good answer. Yeah. It yeah. isn't what Schwab said, huh? <laughs> Schwab said No, good guess though. And there's no way I would never have guessed what Schwab said also. It's, it's a, it's a very, it's a, a complex idea. But So, so let, let's go over here, though. What first, we're going to look at is source number um, three. Actually, no, let's skip source number three because it's only in Hebrew. I, I don't want to read and translate. So let's look at source number four. Source number four is Rashi's commentary in Bereshis. Now, Rashi's commentary is when Hashem tells Abraham, lech lecha, go for yourself, right? And I will make of you a great nation, okay? So Rashi explains like this. Rashi says, Another explanation is, and I will make thee a great nation. This is really a Talmudic passage that Rashi is quoting. This alludes to the fact that we say in our prayer, God of Abraham, and I will bless thee, that we say God of Isaac, and I will make thy name great, that we say God of Jacob. One might think that we should conclude the benediction in which these invocations are recited by mentioning again the names of all the patriarchs. The text therefore states, be thou a blessing, meaning with you, with your name only. Shall they conclude the benediction and not with them, with their names? In other words, the end of that first blessing, we're not going to do it right now, but the end of that first blessing on page 98 finishes with Muggain Abraham," the shield of Abraham. It does not say Muggain Avos, the shield of the fathers. It says the shield specifically of Abraham. So Rashi is explaining, based on this Talmudic passage, that this entire idea that Hashem is saying that bracha, and you shall be a blessing, go for yourself. And and will make you into a great nation and you shall be a blessing. This is a reference to the fact that the that the way in which the Jewish people are great is a reference to God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Okay. Now, what's going on over here, though? Right? Why is Abraham the one who's being mentioned and not the other fathers? Right? And also, it doesn't say Melacha Olam at in this Shemur Esrei. Right? So Rishwab wants to answer both of these both of these questions together. He says, indeed, our fathers, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, recognized Hashem as being the master of the universe. Of course, they recognized Hashem as being the master of the universe. However, there are three different aspects of what we call O Malchus Shamayim, the yoke of heaven. There are three aspects to it. And each one of the fathers kind of focused on one of them. Avram Avinu recognized HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and he spread the knowledge of Hakadosh Baruch Hu in the world. Abin Rabinu was walking around as a itinerant preacher and telling people, "No more believing in your polytheistic gods. It is time to believe in only a monotheistic God." And he spread the knowledge, and he was spreading the word, the holy word. And many people were starting to believe in the Torah, right? I'm sorry, not in the Torah, but to be at least believe in the fact that there is one God, Allahu Akbar, right? Like that kind of idea, right? And that was it. They believe that there's only one God, and this is something very, very powerful. And when Mashiach comes, the rest of the world, will, the rest of the nation will also recognize that, right? Then Abraham Avinu is the one who spread that knowledge initially throughout the world, and this is why we call him Elkei Abraham. Yitzchak was actually very, very specific. Yitzchak was very, very individual. Right? He was very inwardly focused in general, and in particular, when he would focus on the fact that Hashem is the master, he wouldn't focus on the fact that Hashem is master of the universe. He would focus on the fact that Hashem is his master. Right? Hashem, Yitzchak, was ready to sacrifice himself to Hashem. He wasn't walking around teaching the entire world. However, what Yitzchak taught us how to live our lives is how to be able to think of ourselves as being ready to give ourselves up for Hashem. That's Yitzchak, the paradigm that he taught. So Avram goes and tells other people, this is it, you have to accept Hashem. Yitzchak goes and teaches us the paradigm of what it means to be ready to accept Hashem as your God. For all matters, that paradigm is going to be Yitzchak. And Yaakov has the ability to, la the agadla shemecha The agadla shemecha means I will make your name grow greater and greater. And that's the, the, last, ver- the last part of that verse. That Abraham tells, that Abraham is told by Hashem, right? I will make you the great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name grow greater. Okay? So, what does this mean? This means Avram Avinu slowly is spreading his teaching to the rest of the world, right? Monotheism has been spreading throughout the world since Abraham Avinu came back and in, came into the world. What did Yaakov do? What Yaakov did is he was able to say, the Klal Yisrael, the Jewish people, are completely dedicated and devoted to Hashem on a very high level. We then stand as an example for the rest of the world, what it means to dedicate your life for Hashem. So they all kind of worked on different aspects of bringing godliness or the concept of the sovereignty of God into this world. Avram works to just spread the concept of monotheism throughout the world. Yitzchak works on the deepest possible level of how high one can accept the kingship of God over the world as an individual. And Yakov kind of takes both of those and and synthesizes it. He doesn't spread it to the entire world, but he does spread on a very deep, deep level, very meaningful level to his entire family. What it means to be willing to be completely, completely uh, submitted, I guess I should say, submitted and submit yourself to the authority of Hashem. And when you submit yourself to the authority of Hashem completely as a family, then that stands as sort of the example for the rest of the world to understand. Now, so we said that the Shemona Esrei does not follow the typical formulation. doesn't say Melech. And typically we say Melech, we say King. Well, actually the fact that we then focus on Elok Avraham, Elok Yitzchak, Elok Yaakov, that actually is the same thing. Why? Elok Avraham, really is a reference to the fact that Hashem is Melech HaOlam, king of the entire world. Elokei Yitzchak means Melech Al HaYachid, a king over the individuals. Elokei Yaakov means Melech Al Kol Yisrael, king of the entire Jewish people. So even though it doesn't explicitly say Melech, that's actually implicitly there because of the way that we pose the three different relationships that Hashem had, or at least in terms of their acceptance or spreading of the knowledge of Hashem as being the king of the universe, though that is expressed in these by mentioning Okay. We're going to stop